Overcrowded classrooms, record educator vacancies, yet politicians want to give $500 million to a California billionaire and stash $2.4 billion in reserves, while our students and educators suffer. It's a rainy day in Nevada. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association. Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, on today's episode, we're talking about polls, we're talking about trains, and we're talking about state budgets, everyone's three favorite things in Nevada. Well, they're certainly my favorite things, Joey. Jacob and I are joined by Gabby Bierenbaum in D.C. How's it going, Gabby? It's going good. How are you both? doing well. And I feel like we haven't asked you about the weather recently, but Jacob and I have been inundated with hail and more snow because the winter refuses to end here in northern Nevada. How is D.C. on uh, this lovely May afternoon? D.C. can be described as my building was still doing heat and we were having like a fake summer, so I was uncomfortable. And then they switched over to A.C. and now we're having a colder, windy time again. So I'm never comfortable is the is the consensus. <laughs> you, you, you get to join us in the suffering of the uh, the, the springtime. <laughs> right, right. And the pollen. It's just it's a season of suffering. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Speaking of spring, we did a spring poll here at the Nevada Independent with Noble Predictive Insight, formerly OH Predictive Insight, a polling company that we worked with in the past. And you two both talked with Mike Noble, the, the head pollster over there. Let's kind of broadly talk about the poll to start off. You know, why were we doing this poll now and, and what, what did we learn? Well, from the I think from the federal perspective with federal candidates, including the president, I think our last data point was right after the midterm elections. But in the few months since then, you know, we've seen this battle over the debt limit play out in Congress and with the president. The presidential race is heating up. Biden officially declared. There's a few other candidates who have declared. So it's a good time to kind of check in now that we're, you know, several months removed from the midterms and that new issues and the race has cropped up and the race has really started. It's good to check in on how the candidates are doing. I, I helped cover some of the stateside polling. And so one of the things we were tracking is Governor Joe Lombardo's approval rating. And now that we're sort of past the 100 days mark, it's sort of a good check-in point. Has any of the sort of honeymoon period ebbed? And the answer to that is no, not really. So where we're at is about 51% of Nevadans approve of his job performance to about 28% who disapprove. It's a net positive of 23, which is quite high. Now, the thing is, is that approval is a little soft right now. So 35% say they somewhat approve compared to 16% who strongly approve. And a lot of this is partisan coded. Obviously, Republicans like Lombardo more than Democrats because Lombardo is a Republican. And there was a full 21% of respondents who said they have no opinion. And Mike Noble, like you mentioned, he, he told us that basically we would expect only after about six or eight months that people really start solidifying their opinion. So we are still sort of well into this honeymoon phase. Because the legislature is going on, is, is it kind of that people are waiting for the legislature to wrap up before we really see Governor Joe Lombardo's governor style? Because he hasn't signed anything really, you know, a few minor bills, but we're waiting for those vetoes and all those big bill signings to come up, right? That's right. We're really waiting for things to happen. I think that we've seen a lot of explosive news in other state legislatures, right? You're thinking about legislative being expelled in Tennessee or Arizona or Montana. The governors are very involved in those states and getting into the news cycles. And in Nevada, a lot of the fights between Lombardo and the Democratic legislature have been behind the scenes. You know, they're poking at each other on Twitter, in committee hearings. 
and it's not really front and center. And in that way, I don't think people have really solidified an opinion because people don't really have an opinion of the legislature. It's not something of things, it's not a thing like people think about until it affects them. And right now it just doesn't affect them. And Lombardo hasn't really had a ton to do. And so the people just really haven't made up their mind. So Gabby, let's get into some of those federal numbers as well. You know, what did the poll tell us about Nevadans' opinions on the federal races that we're probably going to be seeing next? We're not probably, we're definitely going to be seeing them next year. Yeah, well, starting at the top at president, it was interesting to me because Biden's approval rating from our last poll, which I think was in February to now, went up just a little bit. So I believe before he was around 39% and now we're seeing 42%. So that's within the margin of error, pretty small jump. And yet in the head-to-heads against both Trump and DeSantis, we saw in the February poll that Biden was trailing each of them. I think he was barely trailing Trump and DeSantis had a little bit more of a lead. It was all within the margin of error, I believe, three to four points. But now, just a few months later, a lot has happened. You know, we saw after the midterms, a lot of those Trump-backed candidates didn't do so well. Former President Trump has been indicted with potentially more indictments to come. He's been swiping at DeSantis left and right, you know, tackling him for being anti-senior, for fighting Disney, for not being loyal enough to Trump. And we've definitely seen those take effect in as well as DeSantis's his yet to be announced campaign, which maybe is part of the problem, lacking some of the infrastructure to interface with donors and things like that. So DeSantis has fallen in the polls in general. And we see Biden now with a really sizable lead over Trump, eight points, which is a big jump, especially if I think as voters see that if the primaries were tomorrow, it seems like that would probably be the general election matchup again. And Biden, I think, ran in 2020 a lot of a platform that was look at how bad this guy is and I'm going to write the ship. And I think, you know, with that same matchup again, I think we're seeing voters in Nevada having much of the same conclusion that they might have had in 2020. And then with DeSantis, Biden's now beating him by one point. So that's virtual tie still in the margin of error. But what Mike Noble told us was basically that as poor as Biden's approval rating might be, if he runs against Trump again, it seems that we've learned from the midterms that it doesn't matter. Voters in Nevada seem to just prefer at this point Biden to Trump. 2024 is also going to have a race for U.S. Senate and Jackie Rosen has already jumped into that race. So how is Rosen looking? Yeah, Rosen, I think, you know, we talked to Noble and he said Rosen is in a pretty good spot because there's no major challenger. Now, Jim Marchant announced after we did the poll. So, you know, in the next one, maybe we could factor that in. But as of now, the main obstacle that Rosen is facing is just people not knowing her or not having an opinion. So when we looked at the poll results, Rosen is polling ahead of Biden. She has, you know, higher favorability than him. But 13% of voters either had no opinion or had not heard of her. But that can actually be an advantage, Noble told us, because it gives her a lot of, you know, runway to define herself over the next 18 months, especially while Republicans duke it out amongst themselves for the nomination. And especially with the cash advantage that she expects to have as a Democrat, she's already posted record fundraising totals. We saw in 2022 massive outraising by Cortez Masto over her challenger Laxalt. So she can just kind of keep flooding the airways with positive messages about herself and not have to kind of get into the fighting until next summer. So it's a lot of time for her to define herself for voters who still aren't sure about her or don't know who she is with that sort of base to land on of pretty decent favorability, especially among younger voters, which is big, especially in a presidential year, given that younger voters turn out more in presidential years. So all things considered, I think if you're Jackie Rosen, you're sitting in a pretty decent spot. So we also asked a question about the Oakland A's coming to Nevada, which has been a really big news story the last couple of weeks. What what have the polls said about people's opinion on the A's? They're looking at the specifics of the deal here, right? What what the A's have proposed is they've, they've signed a quote unquote binding agreement to buy land across from the strip, across the freeway in Las Vegas. 
And really what they want is they want to build a $1.5 billion stadium. And to do that, they want $500 million in public money that would be tax incentives, essentially. Now, obviously, the idea of public money for stadiums is fraught. But what our poll found was that 41% said they'd actually support that and 38% opposed it. Another 14% said they didn't support or not support and 7% said they had no idea what they thought. So looking at those numbers, it's actually better for the A's than I think conventional wisdom might imply. But I think it's also important to note that none of this is really set in stone when we heard from the assembly speaker in the legislature that there are no concrete details that have been presented to lawmakers from the A's and they're actually running out of time in the legislature to make a deal happen. But for now, voters plurality say, yeah, sure, public money. Gabby, I'm curious as a DC sports fan, what are your opinions on the A's? <laughs> My opinion of the A's is that they're worse than the Nationals, I believe. So <laughs> they are the worst so, team in baseball this year, I think. Right. To not be the worst team in baseball, which the Nationals were close to last year, is an honor. And I think, you know, anything the A's can do to stay worse than the Nats, I don't know if this would make them better or worse, but I, I'm in support of that. All right. Well, we also asked a couple other questions in these polls that didn't involve the Nationals, unfortunately. Sorry, Gabby. Let's do a quick lightning round, Jacob, of what those questions were and what voters thought about those questions. So we asked a bunch of questions about different major tentpole legislation that's working through the legislature right now. Among them, the Democrats are looking to get a, a constitutional ballot question across the finish line that would basically bake a right to abortion into the Constitution. This would right now it's sort of baked into state law. 62% of respondents said they supported that with obviously a majority of Democrats being in support. But also there was a majority of independents in support of that question, about 60%, and even a narrow plurality of Republicans, 41%. Abortion remains generally fairly popular in Nevada and obviously has been a major campaign issue for Democrats, both last cycle after, after the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade and we assume is going to continue being a major issue in 2024. We also found broad support, 58% for opt-out sexual education. Right now in Nevada, it's actually opt-in. They tell you, would you like to be part of a sex ed class? And your parents have to sign off on that. And then you do sex ed. This would reverse that. You have sex ed automatically unless your parents say, no, I don't want my child in sex ed. And then prescription drug pricing. So Democrats are trying to use federal law and essentially Medicare to negotiate down prescription drug prices in Nevada. That also is very popular. 70% of Nevada's voters say they support that. So all very popular. And finally, the lottery. Okay, literally decades Nevada has been trying to get a lottery, but it's been obviously opposed by the gaming industry because they would rather people spend all that money on the slots, frankly. That hasn't changed, except for the culinary union, casino workers essentially backing the creation of a lottery. And voters love it. 71% of voters say they want a statewide lottery. This is also a constitutional amendment. So again, we're sort of talking about 2026. A lot of stuff needs to happen before we actually get a lottery, but it remains pretty popular. Well, we'll leave it there for now. I'm sure we'll have more polls as we get closer to, you know, other elections and, and, and more exciting things in the future. But Gabby and Jacob, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the polls. And we're going to jump on over to another segment now where we talk about Jacob's favorite thing to talk about trains. All right. Well, welcome to the next segment. Wouldn't you know it, Jacob and Gabby are back to talk about trains now. Hello. Let's talk about Jacob's favorite thing, trains. <laughs> I'm on the record as, as a big, big train guy now. That's my thing. And so, Gabby, you've been doing some reporting on this, which is that there is a company called Brightline, which I've actually talked about in the past, probably two years ago on the podcast now, that is looking to connect Las Vegas to LA via rail, via passenger rail. 
Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you talked about this two years ago, I feel like the higher speed the train is directly proportional to how long it's going to take to actually get something in fruition. So that doesn't surprise me. But basically, as I'm sure anyone in Southern Nevada knows, there have been decades worth of plans and dreams and interest in a high-speed rail line connecting Las Vegas to Southern California. As I'm sure anyone who's ever driven on I-15 knows, it's a pretty prime corridor for another transportation option. And so Brightline is a company, a private company, that basically their ethos is that they want to take pairs of cities that it makes sense it's a little too far to drive or makes driving a little annoying. And yet flying seems unreasonable because it's so short. So that's typically 200 to 300 miles apart. And that those are the types of connections that they feel like they can really make money operating a private train. So that's what they've been trying to do in Las Vegas and in Southern California for they took over the project in 2019 with train stuff. I feel like you never want to be sure because I'm sure others have said before, this is going to be the year, this is going to be the year. But it seems like if they get federal funding from an application they submitted this year, that this could actually be the year that shovels go in the ground and they begin construction on this train, which would be a huge deal to anyone who, like Jacob or like me, likes trains, which is a personality trait. I want to go on the record saying that. Um, So it's exciting. And Gabby, you said like potentially this year we could get shovels in the ground, but when would those shovels be out of the ground and when the train potentially theoretically exist? Yeah. So they're looking at, Brightline says they want to do, it's a three and a half to four year construction timeline. I'm told that that's a little ambitious, but their big goal is to open before the 2028 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. That's kind of like the event that they want to tie their launch to. And I think for really rail advocates, the most exciting thing about this is that they've done it before. So they have a high-speed rail line operating in South Florida right now. The last thing they need is the financing. Well, one thing I wanted to ask, because as a native Las Vegan, look, the the train to L.A. has always been the pipe dream, right? One of the major issues with this train has always been the geography, because, you know, there's some mountains in between Nevada and California. What finally got this particular project to we're We're finally going to make a train from L.A. to Vegas. Yeah. So for those who don't know, the original proposal, which I think the first kind of documents around it were in 2005, the idea was to go from Victorville, which is 90 minutes outside of LA, to Las Vegas. And one of the first things that Brightline did when they acquired the project in 2019 was they set for their profit models. And also they thought just common sense, Victorville didn't make sense. So for Brightline, in order to make the project, they thought feasible, you have to get closer into LA. It's really hard to get into L.A. proper, as we've seen with all these problems with California high-speed rail because of various issues with rights-of-way. There's a bunch of municipalities. It's just, you know, it's an enormous city. It's hard to get that connection to Union Station. What they're doing is they've acquired, you know, the area to put a station. They've done the permitting. They're just waiting on one last environmental decision, which is supposed to come out this summer. But they've connected it to Rancho Cucamonga. It's closer into L.A. I think it's about 45 minutes to an hour, depend, you know, always depending on traffic with LA. But the main thing is that it's already connected to Metrolink, which is the LA system of public transit that connects various different areas, Palmdale, Rancho Cucamonga, a bunch of other suburbs. So the idea is that if you wanted to start the journey in LA, you could get on at Union Station in LA, take the Metrolink to Rancho Cucamonga, and then hop on the Brightline train and get to Las Vegas in record time, way faster than driving. And the main way that they were able to kind of get past the Victorville aspect and they were able to, you know, get through that pass they're describing is that they've situated the entire train within the right of way of I-15. So the idea is that it goes down the median of I-15 and in that way, they didn't have to deal with as many permitting. It still took them several years, 
but they didn't have to deal with as many permitting concerns because highways are already federally owned. I always look at, at um, the trains in Japan and think that could be me. But it's no. so depressing. It's <laughs> literally so depressing. Like anytime you're in Europe and you ride the train, it's like, why don't we have this? Well, yeah, as, as an East Coaster, Gabby, are you, are you kind of spoiled for trains uh, unlike we are on the West Coast here? I guess compared to you guys, yeah. Like whenever I go to New York, I take the train. But Amtrak has like been for 40 years been struggling with finances and with so a lot of times like the ticket prices are annoying and i end up taking a bus at least one way and we're not high speed from dc to new york i think the fastest trains are like three hours with a few stops but and to drive it's like four and a half depending on traffic so i'm spoiled in that i have a train but is it the kind of trains you could get in japan and in korea definitely not (laughs) (laughs) well we'll definitely keep an eye on this project as it moves forward gabby thank you so much for reporting on this and for joining us for two podcast segments in a row i'm sure you'll be on more to talk more about all of the fun things between nevada and dc and now jacob and i are going to go hop over to talk about the economic forum with sean galanka so thanks gabby thank you guys Well, from trains to poles, which is a very awkward transition, Jacob, you and I are joined by our lovely colleague, Sean Galanka, who is actually here in Reno, sitting next to me as we record this. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Joey. Good to be on the couch with you. I mean, I'm here. I'm still here, Joey. Well, I guess we'll get right into it, Sean. For those listening at home, we're talking about the Economic Forum. But just as a baseline, what is the Economic Forum? Well, Jacob, I I think I could best sum it up as the Super Bowl of the state budget process. Basically, In December of even-numbered years before the legislative session and in May of odd-numbered years during the legislative session, this governor-appointed panel of five private industry business experts basically meets to vote on projections for state revenues in the upcoming two-year budget period. So basically, for something like the sales tax, they're going to vote on some projection for how much money the sales tax is going to bring into the state over the next two years. And a combination of those projections is basically used to determine the amount of money that the state will have to spend in the upcoming two-year period. During these biennial legislative sessions, lawmakers are crafting a two-year state budget, and the amount of appropriations, the amount of money they spend in that budget cannot exceed what the economic forum sets for revenue projections for that two-year period. Gotcha. This is the real budget. This is the, it's hitting the fan. This is the final amount. So the top line difference here is 250 million extra dollars from the December forecast to the May forecast. That's the difference. No downward reduction. So lawmakers aren't scrambling to look for cuts of any kind. They have more money to spend. And so the conversation is now, where do we spend that money? Jacob, you and Sean covered this together. What was kind of the, the outcome? What, what, what did they decide? How are they going to spend that money? The thing is, is no one really knows what they want to spend it on for sure right now, or at least they're not telling the press. What we do know is that this extra money, this $250 million, is being treated like one-time dollars. A lot of it is coming in the current fiscal year, so it needs to be spent ASAP. And then what's coming in the biennium is being treated as, okay, we're going to use this for capital projects, or we're going to use this for, I don't know, something that isn't a recurring expense. And certainly that's been the line from the governor's office who, compared to Democratic lawmakers, I think the the governor's office has cautioned a little bit more fiscal responsibility, a little more wariness to recurring expenditures. And so they put an emphasis on on one-time expenses. 
I think, for example, the governor's office said they wanted to put some of this money toward, you know, like Jacob just mentioned, capital improvements, state office buildings, for example. Yeah. And the Democrats have actually lambasted the governor's office for that because the press release the governor's office put out said that they wanted to spend $25 million on furnishing fixtures and equipment. But when you see the word $25 million for furniture, it's become pretty easy for Democrats to lampoon online. Certainly, like how this money is going to be spent is already a point of friction. And I'll, I'll also just add to that, that it is still a pretty, th this increase in $250 million, while obviously pretty substantial, is still a pretty small part of the overall size of the budget, which right now we're looking at what is going to be the largest state budget in history by far. During the 2021 legislative session, they approved a two-year budget that I think was in the range of about $9.2 billion. And now with this new projection from the Economic Forum accounting for tax credits, we're looking at a two-year general fund budget which doesn't include federal funds or other funds, but uh, this general fund budget at $11.6 billion. So a big increase. That's why we're seeing these, these huge new investments in education and, and things like that. One other thing the governor's office wants that Democrats do not is increasing the size of the state's rainy day fund. So I think expect more arguing over that in the next couple of weeks. All right. Well, I think we will cap it there for now, but there will be a lot more discussion about the state budget and funds. So we'll be keeping an eye on all of that. As we continue on reporting on the last month of the legislative session, thank you both so much for joining me. And Sean, thank you so much for walking in front of my house and showing up unexpectedly to record this podcast segment. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Gabby Bierenbaum and Sean Galanka for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rundells and, of course, my lovely co-host, Jacob Sleas. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at the Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Overcrowded classrooms, record educator vacancies, yet politicians want to give $500 million to a California billionaire and stash $2.4 billion in reserves while our students and educators suffer. It's a rainy day in Nevada. It's time for 20. Paid for by Nevada State Education Association.